welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. And to be a successful product manager, a product master, you need several competencies. We tend to be T-shaped sort of people with capabilities in many areas and then much more depth in one area, such as development, design, research, something like that. Product managers early in their career focus on learning the skills to get the job done, those technical skills of product management. It's only later that we might realize that those skills are not enough and that the so-called soft skills are what really make a difference for our careers. And learning those skills sooner result in faster career growth. And that's why I invited product manager and author Matt LeMay to join us. He recently wrote the book, Product Management in Practice, a real-world guide to the key connective role of the 21st century. Matt has helped build and scale product management practices at companies ranging from early startups to Fortune 50 enterprises. In the interview, he explains core connectivity skills successful product managers need. And core is an acronym for communication, organization, research, and execution. You'll find the summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 173. I think you're going to really enjoy this. These are really important skills, even though they're called the soft skills. So now to the conversation with Matt. Matt, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a book recently, which is what we're going to talk about. I did, I did. It's titled Product Management and Practice, but I really like the subtitle, which is A Real-World Guide to the Key Connective Role of the 21st Century, which we'll probably get into in a bit. But first, give us the, the background. Just why, why did you write this book? Sure. Um, so when I started working as a product manager about eight years ago, I did what I think a lot of people do when they start in a new role or a new job or anything new, which was I, I looked for resources. I you know, looked for all the books on Amazon and I looked for all the articles. And the picture that these books and articles painted of product management was really, really different from the work I actually wound up doing when I started as a product manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, product management in theory is very sort of framework driven and in control. And if you do this, then this happens. And if you put things on this you know, product matrix, or if you prioritize using this framework process, you will achieve these outcomes. Um, in practice, it's it's just a lot messier than that. Um, it involves a lot of working with people, and people are messy. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's funny, and this is sort of another conversation entirely, but I think a lot of the theoretical conversation around product management, as with many theoretical conversations about work in this particular moment, sort of over-index on what would be considered the hard skills or the technical side. Right. Um, and in practice, product management is really about leveraging what I've called connective skills to make those connections between the technical stuff and the business stuff. When you're actually in the thick of it as a product manager, that distinction between hard skills and soft skills really doesn't exist in a helpful way. You're just trying to find all the different threads that are dangling around you and pull them together into a way that, you know, into something that makes sense. So uh, I wrote this book because it's the book that I wish I had had when I started out and a uh, book that I wish I had had many, many, many times after that. And still I'm happy to have because I forget all this stuff all the time and 
make decisions and do things that are counter to my own advice all the time, as, as do we all. Um, but it was a, it was, it was sort of a therapeutic process to, mm-hmm. to go back over some of the experiences I had as a working product manager and be able to unpack with a little bit of critical distance, kind of what I could have done differently and what the challenges were and what was going on, you know, outside of the immediate, everything's on fire <laughs> problems that one navigates day to day. It's interesting when, when you look at the excitement that has grown around product management in just the last what, maybe two, three years, right? It's it really has popped up, but you know, the discipline has been around since 1930-ish timeframe, yeah. but it's, it's become very popular recently and primarily with digital sort of products is where we see it. And when you look at the different kinds of product schools that ha- are being offered now to get into product management, they're all about the hard skills. You know, when I look through the, the agenda of what they're training, they're all about the hard skills. And Absolutely. sure, you got to start there. I, I kind of get that, right? You have to be technically competent in the sense of what does a product manager do? I'm not talking about development skills or anything. Just, you know, what does a product manager have to get done? But sure. it, it's those soft skills that really define the role because we end up being very cross-functional and working with others, or at least we should be. And, Absolutely, and being able to drive that a little bit instead of just, as you said, you know, putting out the fires, being reactive, makes a big difference. And uh, I'm sharing this with you just because you may not have ran across it. I'm curious if you did any research or not. When, when I organize the interviews we do for this podcast, they're they're in three categories, right? And the one of them is called Apply Deep Dives, and mm-hmm. that title came out of the notion of that there was another level that product managers needed to go into to really yeah. master their craft. And I would rename it only it's in so much stuff now, it's kind of stuck. But it really has to do with those soft skills to move your, to have more of a kind of a leadership perspective. Yeah. And that's the only reason I would rename it, right? To make that more descriptive. But right. it stems out of this notion. Um, there was a survey done a couple of years ago about you know, one of these pulse of the career for product management type surveys. And they correlated key skills with the 25% increase in pay and also higher responsibility for product managers. You know, we noticed with the people that responded to our survey, the ones that had had these skills, they were getting paid more and they had higher level positions. And they were all around the capability to work well with others, be able to talk to executives, be be able to to defend a position well, you know, and and they were leadership sort of things, right? Uh, Yeah. These soft skills. So I am particularly interested in uh, your book and your your perspective because it's it's kind of missing in the in the offering of resources. You know, it's it's funny too. I've been thinking about this a lot because a lot of books that were written about business in, in the eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the the Patrick Lencioni books and the Jim Collins books, like all the all these people who, who wrote really great stuff. It was all about communication skills. It was all about soft skills, really. And I feel like when you know the second kind of digital boom or whatever you want to call it happened. And people started turning away from that and looking more to tools and frameworks and technologies, less how do we communicate with each other and more what software do we buy so we don't have to communicate with each other. Um, And I feel like one funny thing that's happened is because product management is so ambiguously and inconsistently defined, it's kind of become the vector for those soft skills to return. Hmm. Like because product management, because you just kind of have to do whatever is required and because so much of what's missing from modern organizations is that communication piece, um, it's kind of become the, the Trojan horse for a lot of those lessons that were learned 20 years ago and then promptly forgotten in favor of, uh, you know, quick and easy, supposedly technological solutions. Um, product management is 
bringing some of that back into the conversation in a way that I think is really interesting. So to set a foundation, because product management is discussed in different ways, can you just briefly describe how you think about what product management is? Yeah, um, it's funny because that question could be debated for such a long time, which makes product management different from other roles. You know, in, unless you're getting very philosophical, you wouldn't spend a long time arguing the finer points of what it means to be a developer or a designer or an executive for that matter. Um, but with product management, you know, I think the, the mandate for product managers is pretty consistent, even if the work itself is not consistent. And that mandate is to connect and align the pieces around you with the needs and goals of your users. So if you're sitting on a team with designers and developers and executives, you've got to connect and align them and make sure that their goals, the goals of the business are also connected and aligned with the goals and needs of your users. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the thing that makes it interesting is that, you know, depending on what product you're working on, who's on your team, um, you know, how everybody's feeling that day, whether your boss is cranky, uh, what actual work you need to do in order to accomplish that uh, can look really different day to day to the point where I've, I've worked with some product managers who say that every day they show up to work, it feels like their job is totally different. Right. Um, so that's one of the things that I think makes the role super unique and super difficult to pin down is that if you're doing it right, then the work you're doing will actually be pretty inconsistent, uh, which I don't think is necessarily true of all roles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it evolves uh, certainly over the course of what's going on with the product. And if you're in the idea stage or develop or you know managing its growth. But I like the core there that you said, right, that the mandate is consistent. And I usually express that in terms of we need to create value for the organization and for the customer and connect those two things. And so the, the, the alignment is important. Yeah. And about these, this aspect of connecting and that subtitle of your book, you know, the connective skills, I saw you, you use a model in the book called CORE. Yes. It stands for Communication, Organization, Research, and Execution. And I'm hoping we can just walk through those four and, and give listeners a feel for kind of what, what, are the, what is the essence of these soft skills that product managers need. So we should probably start with the C, right? Communication? Sure. So communication, and, and, and for me, these aren't soft skills so much as, as the skills you need to use to make the connections between all kinds of skills, including hard skills. Okay. Um, I, I have, I have a, sort of a personal vendetta against the hard skills, soft skills uh, binary, because I feel like in a lot of cases, I mean, even just the words, right, hard skills versus soft skills, I think sort of intrinsically privileges one over the other or suggests that one of them is more concrete, more trainable, more learnable. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that, and, and I'm with you on that, by the way. I, unfortunately, we're, we, we're left with the syntax for some yes, reason. But by no means are the soft skills the easy ones, right? And, and these are the yeah. ones that really make the difference to work. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, and communication, you know, every, everybody who's worked in or around product management will tell you that communication is really the most important thing you can do. And that study you cited uh, does not surprise me at all, because in order for you to connect and align people, you have to be able to communicate. With them. If you cannot communicate clearly, then there's really no way for you to do your job well. Um, and, and for each skill, I have sort of a, a guiding principle that that I've synthesized from, from the research I've done. And um, for communication, it's, it's clarity over comfort, which I've kind of tried to make my personal motto for the work I do in general. Um, because I think one thing that doesn't doesn't get enough credit is that the work of communication can be very, very uncomfortable work. Mm -hmm. um, getting people to 
provide the information they need to provide to kind of get beyond those transactional conversations. Again, to get outside of those easy product frameworks and not that those frameworks are easy, but you know, those sort of controllable, manipulable, straightforward product frameworks into what's really going on, into what's happening behind that, into the things that people are afraid of or don't want to talk about or the assumptions they're making or the things that they kind of are afraid might be true about the product, but they don't want to talk about. That work can be incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, but one of your one of your jobs, I think, in many ways, your biggest job as a product manager is to be that relentless voice of clarity to the point where you're probably annoying a lot of the people you work with, just not stopping, not stopping asking those questions mm -hmm. and having those conversations, no matter how uncomfortable they may, might be, until you have the clarity you need to connect and align your team. And that is not it is not easy work. Yeah, and that uncomfortableness comes in you know different dimensions. At least the way I think about it. You have to move into some of those conversations with just the team, but where's the vision for the product coming from? Yeah. You have to figure out how to get that in the first place, and that might mean working with customers. In the beginning, for a lot of product managers I talk to, that's outside their comfort zone. They yeah. don't have that experience. Well, I think that's one thing that a lot of product managers learn early on, right? You know, you go into that role thinking that you're going to be the, the sort of origination point of ideas, right? That you're going to walk in and say, I've got this great idea for the product. Almost every product manager I know, you know, right. in a job interview, they, they list their 10 ideas. Then they start and the first person they talk to was like, oh, yeah, we tried that a year ago and it didn't work. Um, so, again, that that control is something you have to give up uh, mm -hmm. early and often and it's, it's very uncomfortable and not. Yeah. And learning how to talk with executives and interact in a way that you're defending the information that you have, being respectful of their position, yeah. but trying to move the vision of the product forward when there's often either a void in the vision or competing visions for what, what the product should be. Yes. And that happens all the time, all the time. Excellent. So that's our, our C, our communication part. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master. Theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. Next up is organization. Yes. Organization. Um, so the, the kind of litmus test I use for organization um, if you are not an organization-minded product manager, then you are gratified when somebody asks you what they should be working on right now. So when you have somebody on your team come to you and be like, hey, what should I be working on? If if that personal one-on-one -on -one interaction is something that brings you gratification and a sense of importance, 
then you probably do not have a mind or are not tuned into the notion of organization. The idea being that those one-on-one interactions, that communication should be things that you're automating, scaling, systematizing. You shouldn't be the roadblock, the bottleneck for getting anything done. In order for a product team to succeed, the product manager needs to constantly be looking at the systems they use, the way they organize, and saying, all right, how can we make this so that I don't have to constantly intervene, I don't have to constantly override things or, or chime in, but we have an, an organization, a system, which is really putting to practice the ideas, the, the rhythms, the cadences that we need to use. Um, for a lot of product managers who are working in an Agile or Scrum or XP system, um, you know, this is sort of the majority of their work, right? Mm-hmm. That tactical work of keeping the team well organized, keeping things moving. Um, the guiding principle I have for this one is change the rules, don't break the rules. Because one thing I have seen time and time and time again in organizations, and this goes beyond product teams, I've seen this a lot of marketing organizations as well, is that the only way to get anything done is to basically go around the the process, right? Right, right. So you might might have a prioritization process, but the way to get your product built is to, you know, ping a product manager at 8 p.m. on a Tuesday night and say, hey, I know you're working on this, but could you also maybe work on this other thing? And product management, you know, one of the other things about this role that can be uncomfortable is you have to constantly be looking to reinforce the value of those those rules and those practices and those systems. Because if the only way to get things done is to go around them, then you're kind of punishing the people on your team who are trying to play within the boundaries and, and follow those processes and those systems. So organization skills are really about taking those one-on-one interactions that you're cultivating through communication and scaling and systematizing them so that there's sort of a, a machine that runs itself to the best of your abilities. One of my one of my favorite stories I've ever heard from a friend of mine uh, who worked at a financial services company. She had a you know her boss quit and a new boss showed up at the I believe this was the VP level mm-hmm. and told all the directors under her, "You're all taking two weeks off, and if your team can't function without you, you're fired." Hmm. Um, which I, I thought was a really fascinating move that kind of speaks to the importance of these things because if your team can't function without you that's usually a sign that there's more organization work to be done right yeah apparently jack welch did the same thing when he became ceo of ge and he he assembled his executive (laughs) team and he asked okay who has not had any uh days off or a vacation in the last year the people that said yes were removed from the the executive team and his reasoning was clearly you have not built a system to for your group to manage without you. And uh, yeah. that's important. So I don't know if it's Fable or not, but I, I, I may have read <laughs> it in his bio. Who knows? The, the, there's some tensions here I, I want to talk with you about. The, yeah. you know, change the rules, don't break the rules. I love that. You know, change the system. I have encountered many organizations where when I ask for an example of, of innovation, you know, what mm-hmm. do they talk about? The one they pull out for me as we dig into it further usually the one they're most proud of is the one that they had to completely work outside of the system to make happen, right? Yes. Because there were too many barriers in place that this new product would never have come into existence if they followed the system. And product managers who have been product managers for you know any length of time probably recognize that it's hard to change the system. What have you found? What are, what are your tips for enabling product managers to start taking this on and not just break the rules, but how can we in the long term make the system better? That's a great question. And you you actually kind of answered it, which is to say that 
when product managers do the work of communicating and getting to hear the kind of organizational memory of a company, almost every time they talk about those examples of innovation or a product that succeeded, the stories they hear are stories of the rules not working. Um, and in a lot of cases, people in senior leadership positions just aren't close enough to the rules to understand that they are making it harder to innovate. Hmm. Um, they're looking at things on a different level. They're dealing with, they're dealing with their managing up. One important thing for product managers to do is to make senior people aware of the downstream trade-offs and implications of the things they're saying, because they're often just not aware of them. So in a lot of cases, if you can go to a senior leader and say, hey, remember that one really great thing we did? Well, here's the thing. Like, In order for that to happen, this product manager who was here five years ago had to actually go outside of their organizational budget. So think about all the opportunities that we might be missing to do more really groundbreaking work. Um, I found that nine times out of 10, it's not that leaders want to stifle innovation or want to stop things from moving forward. It's that they're not closely connected enough to those downstream implications for them to actually get involved and say, yes, we need to change this. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, again, a lot of it comes back to communication and communicating fearlessly, being willing to you know, run something up the ladder and say, hey, these rules are having these effects or these incentives or the way that we measure success or the way that these are having these downstream implications for the way we develop products. How can we work together to change this so that we can create more room for people to do the kind of work that you want them to do? That's really good advice. Just letting the the senior people that are involved in making these kind of decisions, these trade-offs and statements aware of the actual consequences. Because a lot of time in these conversations, they don't realize that their one sentence statement might mean two months of work for the product team. Yes. And making those connections is important. And you might not want to, you know, kind of say off the cuff that one sentence statement without some actual thought if that is that really the direction we want to go in, because we're talking probably about two months of product team work. Yeah, it's funny. I, one of the stories I, I heard when I was researching the book, you know, somebody talked about a, a manager of hers. Um, being in conversation with a very, very, very important executive at a very important company. And that executive asked, do you think we could get this launched in two weeks? And, and her manager said, yes, reflexively, because, you know, when this person asks you a question, you always say yes. And, you know, the team went on this grueling two-week sprint to get this product launched, made a lot of mistakes because they just had to get it launched. Mm-hmm. But if you actually take leadership's comments and questions at face value. Um, it's actually very rare that they ask for unreasonable things, I found. It's more often that they ask a question and, and other people are, are too afraid to push back right. or to say, all right, if you want this done in this time frame, here are the trade-offs we'll need to make. Are those trade-offs acceptable? Or even better, like, why do we need it in two weeks? What are the, you know, what are the parameters here? What are we trying to accomplish and when are we trying to accomplish it? Um, it's, again, uncomfortable in the moment to push back in that way. But per your point, it's not that these people are trying to be unreasonable and, and work you to death. They're, they're asking a question. And mm-hmm. if you're not answering that question as it's asked, then you're not really taking them at face value. Yeah. And, and they certainly don't have all the information and the knowledge about about the product. And they need product managers to help fill in the gaps and ask the right questions. So. Absolutely. So that's very good. So core, we got our communication organization that takes us to R, which is research. Tell us about research. Research. So research is really all about proactively seeking out and synthesizing different perspectives, including but not limited to the perspective of your users. Um, This is a really important one because 
it is so easy when you're doing that connective work of product management to become so caught up in organizational politics and then the people and players within your team and your organization that you stop taking that broader view, mm -hmm. that you get disconnected from your users, that if something makes the senior stakeholder happy, that's all that matters, even if it's not going to be valuable for your users. Um, research is really that muscle you build of always taking the broader view, seeking out new information, seeking out new perspectives, even if they're going to complicate the work that you're doing. Um, the example I give sometimes is that a, a research-minded product manager, if you know a competitor just launched a new product, they go out and talk to users right away. They're like, all right, what does this mean for you? How does this fit into your life? They're looking for those opportunities to discover new things rather than sitting and saying, all right, we need to get to feature parity with them right now. Because mm -hmm. Because customers don't really care about feature parity in most cases, right? Like everything is part of an experience, part of a journey. And product managers who excel at research are always proactively seeking out that new information, those new challenges, uh, and looking for ways to activate that before someone tells them to. And doing that research, right? Finding the sources of that information. And it sounds like, at least the way I think about this, this is very much being in the customer's shoes, in the shoes of your users, being yes. close to what their needs are and trying to meet the needs in your product that, that haven't been met before by what they're using. Yeah, I like to say that the, the guiding principle for this is to live in your user's reality. Hmm. And I, I like using that word reality because, you know, for most people, your product is just one one millionth of their life. You know what I mean? It's You've got to take that broader view. You've got to be really actively curious to, to take that, that wider perspective and see where this fits into other things. Because if you are so hyper-focused, you know, I think, I think the problem with a lot of the, the sort of user empathy ideas is that what winds up happening is like you spend 100% of your time in, in kind of your user's small toe. You know what I mean? Like right. You're looking at one little corner of their life and saying like, all right, I'm just going to really understand how they use this part of my product. But how they use that part of your product might be, you know, for one second between using five different other things. And for you to really identify those opportunities, it's important for you to take that broader view and, and say, all right, I don't know where this is going necessarily. You know, there's no immediate transactional value necessarily in my learning this thing about these people. But if I'm trying to understand their perspective, their worldview, what they care about at a higher level, then that's going to help me make better decisions and better connect their, what they're doing with the work I'm doing and better change course if I need to. So, you know, I won't have spent, you know, 10 years researching one tiny product that's inevitably going to change, but rather getting out ahead of those changes before they're manifest in either an immediate competitive challenge or something else, which is going to change our ability to get ahead of that. Mm -hmm. And that really influences the two other areas you've, you've already talked about, the organization, the systems processes, and yes. the communication part. If we are – I have always just taken the position that we should – the stake in the ground, we should be grounded to what our customers' needs are. We should be yep. aware of the customer – Competitors, sure, okay, we can have some focus there, but we should be chasing them, right? And yes. not building Agreed. capability without actually knowing how it, it informs the customer's use and, and provides some value. And that helps us then kind of push on the system if we, we yep. have that kind of our, our key guiding principle here. And that forms our communications too, because now we're talking about what is best for the customer, not best for some other aspect of the project. Absolutely. Yeah. And on, on all of these, these skills, they, they're often 
leveraged at the same time. You know, they all kind of bleed into each other. And the day-to-day work of product management often involves using all four of these at the same time Mm -hmm. to solve whatever particular problem you need to solve. That makes sense. So let's move to the fourth one, which is execution. Execution. So this is this is kind of my favorite one um, because this is this is the one w- which is so deeply unavoidably true about product management, which is that you need to be willing to do whatever it takes. Mm. Uh, you need to be willing to do stuff, and that's part of what makes this role really interesting and unique. And I think what what disappoints a lot of people who get into this when they're really enamored with the theory of product management. Uh, because in order for your team to succeed, in order to connect and align, you're going to have to do stuff like sometimes you're going to have to get coffee for people. Right. You know, sometimes you're going to have to step step down and do stuff which might feel like it's below your pay grade. Um, you, you've got to do that. And you've got to do that just without being a jerk about it. And, and, you know, that sounds like judgmental language, but I've fallen into that trap before, too, where I've gotten frustrated. I've you know, started to feel like I'm not a valuable strategic person. Like I'm just a gopher or I'm just a therapist. I'm just doing all these little tasks, putting out all these fires. Um, why am I not doing this important strategic work? Um, but the sort of natural position of a product management is to, to fill in the gaps mm-hmm. and to do what needs to be done. And you need to be willing to do that. The interesting thing, which I did not expect when I started working as a product manager, was that the opposite is true too. Just as you're going to have to do work that might feel beneath you, uh, you also are going to have to do work that might feel above you. There are also going to be situations where you have to step up and fill the roles of a senior leader or have a conversation with somebody really important and do something which feels risky and dangerous and beyond the scope of your responsibility. There have been a few times in my career. Um, there was one particular time where I was called into a strategic, a strategic decision-making meeting uh, because my point of view was different from that of most of the senior people, um, I would argue in part because I was closer to our users. And, um, you know, I made the case for what I thought was right. People agreed to that course of action. And a very important person in the room kind of put his hand on my shoulder afterwards and said, I hope you're right about this, because if you're wrong, I'll make sure you never work again. Ouch. And uh, that was a tough moment. You know, I, I, I think I was right insofar as the outcome I predicted, you know, by some combination of insight and chance was the outcome that proved to happen. But I, I've been surprised at how many stories like that I've heard from product managers, not just that, you know, I went and got coffee for the team or I organized an event or I made cupcakes or whatever, but also, you know, I, I sat down and told our CEO something that nobody else was willing to tell our CEO. Um, the stories of, of being willing to step down, up, or sideways, whatever it may be. And if something needs to get done, you know, you got to make sure it gets done. And if no one else is around to do it, then guess what? It's your job, right? whether or not it's what you know how to do. I think the extreme negative position of that is, you know, where you started in your product management career and why you wish you had this book sooner, which was, you know, too often doing that go for work. Right. The yeah. Coming in, not knowing what I should be doing. Everyone has some fire for me to put out the role changes all the time to, you know, the other extreme is the glorious days of everything just works the way it's supposed to, because we have a book that tells us how things are supposed to work. Yeah. And yes. it turns out, as you said earlier, there's all these diverse people that we also work with that makes it interesting because every day is different because of that, because we're all different. Yep. And keeping that perspective that you talked about in the execution, I think is really helpful that at the end, we do need to be willing to do what it takes, 
um, and at the same time have some you know guiding principles about the vision of the product. And we're doing these other things, right? We're doing the research and we're trying to change the organization system to be better for our customers and communicating clearly along the way. Yeah. I mean, I, what, I, what I wish I had known was that a lot of the stuff that felt like it wasn't my job really was my job and it was okay. Hmm. <laughs> like so much of what I needed was just somebody to say like, Hey, that time you're spending just talking to people, learning about the work that they're doing. Right. Uh, that's, that's okay. That is part of your job. It's not that you're not doing the thing you're supposed to be doing because you're not doing business model canvases and writing user stories. Like hmm. that's one thing you might find yourself doing. But, you know, if you're starting at a company, especially if you're working at a startup where there's a million things that need to be done and not enough people to do them, um, you know, sometimes as a product manager, you know, my, my first couple of years as a product manager, I also basically was, was an ad hoc community manager because nobody mm-hmm. else was doing that. And I felt really bad about that for a long time. I was like, oh, why am I doing this? Why should we be doing that? But that was exactly what I needed to do because that gave me, you know, proximity to users and right. helped me understand what was going on. Good research. Uh, exactly. Good research, but you know, all I could see was that I'm not doing these things that product managers are supposed to be doing. Hmm. Um, so there's, you know, a delicate, a delicate and difficult balance between doing what needs to be done and also being proactive about prioritizing that work and figuring out what's most impactful and what's most important. Yeah, and some of that comes through experience and and yeah, absolutely, and good mentors. Hopefully, did, did I miss your tagline for execution? Oh, for execution, it was. Uh, the, the guiding principle for execution is no work beneath, no work above, okay. uh, which is that same idea, right? That you, you you can't approach any work as beneath you. You can't approach any work as above you. It's actually, from a cultural standpoint, I think one of the most profound positive impacts that a product manager can have is just to, to behave and conduct oneself in a way that expresses appreciation for the work that everybody does, um, you know, in organizations with hierarchies and with you know people who, who who obviously make more money than other people, um, it's it's very easy for certain kinds of work to sort of become seen as low status work and other types of work to be seen as high status work. Mm-hmm. And as a product manager, you're in a good position to you know model model the value of the low status work and keep the high status work grounded in right. business objectives as opposed to just busy work. So there's a lot you can do there. That's really valuable. And the little secret here, Matt, is because the role is so undefined most places, mm-hmm. we can take on anything that appears to be something that we need to take on without Absolutely. much, without much resistance. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the good side to most people who hire product managers having no idea what a product manager is supposed to do. Right. You know, if you show up to work one day and you say, I'm going to stand on my head and, and weave baskets and people are like, okay, great. That's <laughs> That must so be it. It afford you a lot of a lot of air cover. Okay, so thank you for talking through the, these four aspects of, of the core connective skills, uh, and I like those guiding principles, right? Uh, communication, clarity over comfort, organization, yes. change the rules, don't break the rules, research, live in your users' reality, so important, and execution, no work beneath, no work above. Those are all good uh, quotes in themselves. And as listeners mm-hmm. know, and as I shared with you earlier, I love innovation quotes. And I asked you to bring one. Can you tell us what that is and why you chose it? Sure. So so the quote I use, which I've opened a lot of training workshops I've done with, is from Alan Wilson Watts, the philosopher and writer and talker, who, who said, uh, the menu is not the meal. And I love this quote so much because it's so simple, 
and, and seems so obvious, but it speaks to just how different the experience of something and the rhetoric around that thing can be, right? Um, in, in dealing with product management and dealing with innovation and in dealing with things where there is so much rhetoric, um, it's, it's easy to lose sight of experience and to say, oh, what's important is that we agree to a definition or that we agree to what this is called um, or, or to kind of fall into that trap of paying more attention to the menu than you do to the meal. Right. So one thing I always try to remind myself you know, as somebody whose job is largely rhetoric is that uh, you know, the menu is not the meal, that the experience of something is more important than what that thing is called or how it's described. And when you free yourself up to focus on that experience, um, it also makes it, frankly, much easier to see through a lot of BS in this world mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the menu, it's a lot easier to write a menu than it is to cook a delicious meal. And there are a lot of folks out there, I think, especially in the world of innovation, who, you know, have sort of figured out the right word salad for this particular moment. And, uh, you know, again, that's that's word salad. That's, that's the menu, not the meal. Right. So I, I like that phrase, the word salad. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's so funny because I see, you know, so many and a lot of the consulting work I'm doing now is with with marketing functions in, in large and small organizations. And it, it's so interesting because for marketing, like, you know, their job is the menu, basically. Um, so making that connection, really keeping all the work that's done from a marketing standpoint, grounded in the experience of the product, closing right. that, breaking down those silos is so important. And, and part of what I really like about some of the consulting work I'm doing now is that it's it's actually a lot easier to get that done as an outside consultant than it is from within any one of those silos. So it's uh, it's it's a nice it's a nice thing to keep top of mind that you know we're we're ultimately in the business of creating meals, not menus. It's a great quote. Thank you for sharing it with us. One I'm not familiar with. I, I appreciate the idea there too. You know, it's the tree for the forest, forest for the yeah. trees, sort of thing too. Important. How can people find out about your book, where that's available, and and connect with you if they want to know more about the work that you are doing? Yeah, so you can find me mattlemay.com, just my name.com. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. If you do a search, there's a couple of Matt LeMays, but I'm the one who shows up as the person who wrote the book, Product Management in Practice. And you can find the book on Amazon or at your favorite local bookseller. I'm a big fan of supporting local retailers. Um, O'Reilly's books are distributed in a lot of places, so if you go to your local bookstore and ask them about it, they should be able to order it for you. Speaking of O'Reilly, uh, the book is also available through O'Reilly's Safari platform, which is a subscription platform, um, which I, you know, I, I say this as objectively as I can, uh, it is a really, really great platform and a really good deal because not only do you get access to the books, but you also get access to live online trainings by the people who wrote the books, such as myself. Um, when you get those that platform for a lot less than it would cost you to actually, you know, hire the author of something for a workshop about that thing. So the Riley Safari platform is something I recommend to folks. And other than that, you can find me on Twitter at Matt LeMay. I'm always happy to hear from folks and to answer your questions and to talk product or anything else. 
Excellent. Thanks for sharing those. I will make sure that the links to all those resources and including mattlemay.com are is available in the show notes to make it easier for the everyday innovators that you can find Wonderful. that in one place. And Matt, I appreciate your time. Thanks for this book. I think it's a very important contribution to focus on kind of this other aspect of product management, which is arguably the real aspect of how do we do our work with others and be effective? Yeah. We're putting it. So thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Matt at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 173. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.